0: Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks.
1: Ed here, welcome to another edition of Digital Voices. This one's going to be a lot of fun because I get to reconnect with a good friend of mine. And it's Dr. Ken Adams. Ken, welcome to Digital Voices. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. And that's one of the privileges of doing Digital Voices. I get to reconnect with so many of my colleagues who have done amazing things in the world of digital, technology, leadership, clinical, innovation, transformation, all the buzzwords. Ken certainly one of those people. And we have so many other things in common. You'll hear a little bit about that. But Ken today serves at United Healthcare, Medicare, and retirement. We'll talk a little bit more about that specifically. But he's been a longtime sort of chief medical officer, chief operating officer, cyclist, friend, entrepreneur, great husband and father. So just a really all-around... And yeah, I mentioned cyclist. Yeah, all-around great person. So I'm trying to remember, Ken, when we first met, but I think it was maybe 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, we were both serving at Texas Health and we were working together on a project. I remember that. And then as we were working on that project, we realized that we had a lot of other things in common. One of it was our pursuit of athletics and so we sort of formed a, a loose team there at Texas Health. If you recall, we, we had, we don't call them uniforms. What do we call them? Well, you call them something different as a track cyclist. Skins. You call them skins, right? Yep. Skin suits. And for um, a regular triathlete, I'm trying to remember, it's a kit. And so we had them branded as Texas Health Ben Hogan Sports Rehab or some, I can't remember what the name for sure. But we had our skins, we had our kits, and we did some cool things and represented our organization around the country, around the world, really. And it was a lot of fun. And then we did great things for our patients, you know, clinically. So anyways, we've known each other quite some time and we climbed mountains. We can go on forever just on this stuff, but we climbed mountains together. So you were like our, one of our mountain docs and uh, we just had a whole lot of fun. But let's move on to you specifically. So Ken, Everyone wants to know what songs are on your playlist. So what, what songs do you like to chill to?
0: I'm definitely a child of the 70s and 80s. So we got uh, Creedence Clearwater, Van Halen, Leonard Skinner, Fleetwood Mac. But I'm also influenced by my teenage daughter. So I got a little bit of Lord and Cannons and Taylor Swift. And then some Christian rock, probably U2, King and Country, Toby Mac and Stars Go
1: Dim. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, I remember we had a lot of uh, music in common as well. And what about your life passion or message or mantra? Is there something that sort of guides you?
0: For years, it's been about lifting up physicians to deliver exceptional care to patients and especially the frail elderly.
1: You know, not to put you on the spot, Ken, but I know you and I also had a common sort of mantra related to a scripture in Corinthians about running the race or not running the race, but it was Paul talking about not beating the air, but, you know, being purposeful. You know what I'm talking about? Do you remember this? I do vaguely. I can't think of it exactly. Oh, yeah. So I'll have to put it in the show notes. But yeah, it's a great, it's in the latter part of 1 Corinthians. And it's Paul was tent making at the, the Isthmus Games, which was a precursor to the Olympics. And anyways, he was watching these people compete. And he's like, it's great that they compete. Look at the discipline they use. We should be the same discipline, but we compete somewhere else in a different arena, you know, and with this purpose, you know, it's really about, you know, sort of that long-term like eternal sort of thinking. But anyways, no, that's great. Tell us about your story. So you're sort of interesting person. Ken, tell us your story. I uh, started out
0: uh, five years old. Loved garbage trucks, thought I wanted to be a garbage man, but uh, had an Asian mom. So that was not actually on the to-do list for her. She informed me about that time that I was going to be a physician. And thus, I am a physician because I have an Asian mom. (laughs) And you know, if I look back on kind of how I grew up, I was always an entrepreneur. I was always doing things on the side and building businesses. And so when I finished up residency, had no desire to go work for somebody else and started my own clinical practice, single um, single physician, single specialty, grew it out to a number of physicians across the North Texas area, and uh, ultimately decided sometime around 2005 to leave the bedside to do more administrative work, believing that I could have a bigger impact with managing other physicians rather than just seeing patients myself. And that has, over the last 20 years or so, kind of been uh, where I've I've seen and felt the, the greatest joy. I have been in publicly traded companies. I currently work for a Fortune Five company, but I've also been in the entrepreneur seat where I'm the CEO when I walk in in the morning and I take out the trash at night because I'm also the janitor. And pretty much every stage in between with funded startups and unfunded startups and NGOs and, you know, nonprofit uh, boards. So I've had the opportunity to see it all, really, I feel like. And, you know, while, while I enjoy patient care, I've had a deep dive into IT and data and analytics and Built an EMR for a small little company back when EMRs didn't exist in the skilled nursing facility industry and we needed physicians to be able to document. I have to say I've just been really blessed and, and have gotten to, to see the world literally and figuratively yeah. through my healthcare profession. Yeah, no,
1: you're definitely one of those uh, renaissance people have done a lot of different things. And before I want to jump into cycling, because it's really interesting as well. But before we get there, and I don't want to forget, you have two amazing daughters. I knew them when they were like five and eight. They had started their own three amazing daughters. But two of them started started this uh, paper for water. Can you share a little bit about that? Like, Because that, that's all about entrepreneurship and giving back. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, when they were three and
0: five, we decided I had the kids for the day and my, my wife was uh, out of town or something. And I just I wanted a project that was going to take all day so I could entertain them. So I wasn't having to jump from one thing to the next. So we we did these little cutouts of wooden dogs and they put their handprints all over them. And they actually turned out kind of cute. And we we labeled them dogs looking for a handout and um they had so much fun doing it that they just they wanted to do it for like the next four or five weekends in a row so you know at some point my wife's like we don't have any more wall space to hang these up so you need to do something with them so i had my oldest daughter go up to starbucks she's five years old she takes her artwork in and she says to the the manager you've got all these other artists in here that and you're selling their artwork can i display my artwork here and sell it and who's going to say no to a cute little five-year-old with her artwork so He said yes, and they they had a little art show, and he had his most successful Saturday ever. We raised uh, close to 800 bucks selling these wooden dogs to our kids' friends parents, and they ended up keeping about 10% each, and they gave 10% to the church, and then they took the residual to Children's Medical Center and uh, gave the CEO a check. That That was the really cool part. The CEO actually came down, shook their hands, got a photographer to take pictures, and then they had some people around clapping their hands and cheering, and the girls thought that was the coolest thing. So fast forward, we did a couple more of those types of events where the kids make something and sell it. So by the time they were five and eight, they you know had done this several times. And we had a someone who lived in our garage apartment who had uh, just been on a well drilling trip to Nicaragua. And she came over and she told the girls that little girls in developing countries generally don't get to go to school because they're hauling water all day. And then she also told them that a child died every 15 seconds from lack of clean water. And those two statistics really hit home to the girls. First off, they had a little sister who was just barely a year old at the the time. So that, that 15 second statistic really struck home. And then they were just absolutely pissed that there were no boys hauling water or or that's what they thought. And they're like, we need to change this. We need to make it so girls can go to school. Cause at that particular point in time, they absolutely love school. And so they decided on a plan. They started making these origami ornaments. It takes about an hour now. Then it took them a week or so to make one of them. And they exchanged them for donations. And in the course of two months had raised a little over 10 grand. So that set them on their path. And as we look back 11 years later, they've raised over three and a half million dollars and funded 350 water projects in 20 countries. That's amazing.
1: That's why I wanted you to take story, uh, share the story because... Uh, There's so many life lessons from that and good parenting as well. Well, now it's going to make the track cycling not as exciting, but I know that you're a big, it's not, I'm boring. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a, it's a big part of your life though. This track cycling. Can you explain what track cycling is? And then, uh, We'll go into some of your achievements and then we'll start talking about the payer side of of life. Sure. So track cycling is
0: basically racing on a velodrome, which is a specific structure that allows cyclists to race without fear of wet manhole covers or stray dogs or gravel in the corners. The tracks range in size from 167 meters, which is incredibly short and tight and highly banked at either end to about 500 meters. And they're found all over the world the races occur on bikes with a fixed gear so you always have to be pedaling and there're no brakes which is kind of crazy to a lot of people yeah. but actually makes it safer i know that's counterintuitive
1: that's one thing i wish i would have done and i know when we were hanging out a lot more something i wanted to try sometime but yeah that's pretty cool but you know i know you're not going to tell us unless i ask but i want you to share you know some of your achievements i know that you know you've raced for our country and things like that even still today right so won a
0: silver medal in 2005 at the Pan American Masters in Havana, Cuba, which was really cool. And I've won several Texas State Masters championships over the last 20 years. And then recently in September, I placed 14th at
1: Worlds. And that was the first time I've actually raced uh, at a World Championship. Yeah, that's pretty impressive because you're, you know, to whittle it all down, 14th in the world. That's pretty amazing accomplishment. What about, do you ever think about some of the things that you learn from track cycling that apply in the workplace or, or vice versa? Oh, for sure. I mean, I would say that in cycling,
0: there's a, a lot of just daily nose to the grindstone doing the work that needs to be done. And, and then occasionally you get a big win. I mean, seriously, the last time I raced was six years ago to place at Worlds. It took six years of training and that it's, it's hard to get up every day and, and go do that. It's about persistence. I would say, you know, all around physically, I'm probably the strongest I've ever been. When I was in my 20s, I was, I, I definitely had more sheer strength, but my endurance has continued to improve over the last 20 years. And maybe it's not just leveling off. I haven't had a VO2 max in years to check it, but I've noticed that my intermittent fasting routine over the last five years has yielded dividends in my endurance at two hours and three hours. So it's been an evolution and it continues to evolve.
1: So you're obviously, you've got these three wonderful daughters and a wife and a busy career and doing track cycling. How do you fit it all in? I mean, people always probably wonder, hey, how does Ken do that? So
0: actually, I do have something specific. In 2005, we disconnected the cable TV and took the TV out of all our rooms. We have a monitor still left and access to downloaded movies. But the only you know monitor in the house now is in the guest bedroom, and it's out of sight. It's out of mind. And that frees up so much time. And then in 2016, I, I disconnected from Facebook, and that, too, freed up hours every week.
1: <laughs> oh, those are good ones. Those are hard ones, too, though especially the first one. That, that's, that's a big one. That's huge. So, and as you mentioned, it paid paid a lot of dividends. And the Facebook, yeah, I thought you just unfriended me, but I guess uh, you just uh, took a break from uh, a long, a six, six, seven year break from, uh, from uh, you know, that's cool. But let's talk about payers. So you've worked on both sides, providers and, and payers, you know, was there a reason behind the switch or just trying something new or just, you know, you know, talk about some of the reasons why, and maybe some of the differences between the two. Yeah. So I'd say during residency, I kind of came to the conclusion that
0: the the frail elderly want to stay at home as long as they can and want as much care delivery done in the home as possible. And the data that people are healthier both physically and more importantly, mentally living at home rather than being institutionalized is is out there. It's it's for real. So preventative care and care to ensure that the patient stays at home is foundational in my mind. So I started out specifically on the physician side, provider side, trying to impact patient care delivery through my own care delivery and in what I did on a day-to-day basis. And I could see 20 to 25 patients a day in the hospital and that was super rewarding. Still enjoy seeing patients. I don't, I don't actually do it much anymore except for my team physician work that I do. But at some point, I I hired some more physicians, and I found that through my management and leadership skills, I could impact three to five physicians working for me who in turn could impact 20 to 25 patients each. And I felt like I was leveraging my capabilities. I was promoted to the CMO of a publicly traded company, and that put 117 medical directors under my purview. But at the, but, the, but at the end of the day, I was still unable to get on the radar for an insurance company to implement, at that time, what was beginning, the beginning of value-based care. I was here when ACOs started and we started talking about how we are reimbursed for outcomes. And I just didn't really feel like we had a platform to make that happen. So I switched to the hospital side because hospitals have contracts with payers. And really, I was on the front end of, of like I said, the ACO development I'll have to say I'm not a big fan of of hospitals owning ACOs because of the need to drive patients to hospital beds. It's it's misaligned incentives, I think. And additionally, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that the 2% withholds for penalties around readmissions, that's not enough to get a CFO to change his mind about how we do things. So about four years ago, I began to look at the payer side and what kind of impact I could have in the care delivery and not necessarily out of the goodness of the payer's heart, but there are financial alignments because at the end of the day, elderly patients wanting to stay home, elderly patients wanting to stay healthy as long as possible, elderly patients wanting to get preventative care that actually leads to lower cost care. So payers actually want to do that for their members. So that's why at the moment I'm on the payer side. I'm really trying to impact care delivery for frail elderly patients. And at the moment, I feel like that's the the most leveraged spot to be. Yeah,
1: no, it makes a lot of sense. There seems to be this historical friction between payers and providers. And I recall, you know, when we were together at Texas Health, you know, even then, you know, we'd have these big battles with whoever the payer was, and they would sometimes be out in the media as, you know, every each side was trying to get leverage and it. And then ultimately, we'd come to some settlement, but no one was really happy Do you think that there's a way, and maybe there's some organizations that already found it, but to remove that friction and have this good working relationship between a payer and provider? That's a tough one. I think we're still a ways from there. I mean, you know, I think we're mostly
0: aligned aligned around trying to deliver preventative care and improving the efficiency of care delivery. We're not really aligned around quality care metrics and utilization management and cost transparency. I hate to lump the physicians in with the hospitals, but they're they're both providers. So based on what we're talking about, I kind of have to. I mean, there's there's ultimately a lot of self-protection in the provider world. I know physicians fear that quality metrics are going to be disseminated to all members and that small patient pools are geographically locating in a, a poor rural area or a poor urban area is going to ultimately skew your quality metrics unfavorably. And the whole, you know, cap scoring driven by members that are unhappy with providers who refuse to prescribe narcotics. And those are all things that that happen, but they happen across the United States and across all patient populations. And at the end of the day, I put a lot of value in the quality metrics that we're producing. And yet we get so much pushback, like that's not my patient population, you know, or, or my patient population is different or my pool of, you know, community members that I can pull from is different than everybody else's. And it's just hard. And I know, you know, I, I alienate, I think a lot of my physician coworkers when I say we need to move to to a more nationalized system with transparency on cost and quality. I mean, for the most part, services currently are based on a percent of Medicare. So we're We're kind of at a national system for pricing and, you know, 75% of current graduates are employed by groups. They're not individual practitioners anymore. So, you know, the days of independent practices are waning and, and I think we're moving more towards kind of that nationalized system. And I want to tell everybody to not be as fearful of it as, you, as a lot of people are, because we're kind of already there. We just, we just need to work on improving it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, um, with Digital Voices, we speak with leaders like yourself from both the payer side, provider side, and other parts of healthcare. And everyone is well-intentioned and has the right heart in it, you know. And so, but there always seems to be this friction. That's why I asked the question. And, and I've postulated that perhaps one day, yeah, short of a national system, we might have a truly vertically integrated system, meaning it could be an organization like yours, like United Healthcare that gets with, uh, I'm making up this example, but let's just say all the Catholics systems become one and this United and then Amazon bolts on and then a pharma bolts on and a home care bolts on. And you have this, the entire system in a single, you know, and with broad depth of coverage across the country and clinically, and depth of services. I just wonder if that might be something that we come to. So in a way, it's it's not a na- single national solution, but it's it's kind of getting bringing the, all the pieces together. But even more, you know, stronger. Like with you get with you get when you bring in the retail component, like a CVS or Walgreens, and you bring in the big tech, like Amazon or you know someone like that. Yeah, it's just kind. Of, it's, we live in interesting times, but I'm. It always makes me feel better knowing that people like you, Ken, are out there. You know, serving as a CMO, and so. Tell us a little bit about your role as CMO, you know, working on the payer side.
0: Yeah, so interestingly within our organizations, I mean, it sounds like Ken's CMO, big deal. Well, there are four or five levels of CMOs above me. So, I mean, I'm I'm a cog in the machine. I am the CMO, COO for Texas. We, we have 650,000 lives in Texas. So in my own head, I'm kind of a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm really not. In Texas, we have 100% of our membership that's now delegated essentially over three large entities and, and a couple of smaller entities. So what I do compared to what some of the other CMOs within United do, do does, is completely different. So I spent a lot of time with our delegates focused on quality metrics, CAPS and HAAS, RAF and HEDIS, all those kind of, you know, those crazy acronyms, trying to deliver care in members' homes as much as possible and coordinate their care more effectively and efficiently. And then the other cool thing is that while I'm in UHC, I've, I've been able to be an entrepreneur or maybe I think they call those entrepreneurs. Yes. I've built out a case management team that initially was focused on West Texas because we have a really interesting space with very few providers and not a whole lot of infrastructure. And yet a whole bunch of patients who love this concept of an LPPO where they don't have to have a PCP. They don't have to have someone telling them what kind of care they can deliver because by gosh, they can get on Google and figure out their own care. And as a managed care CMO, that's horrible Yeah, <laughs> because the average individual is actually really not good at managing their own care. Whatever they think they, they can do on Google, they don't do a great job. So anyway, I was able to create a care management team that now, by the end of 2023, we're going to be over the entire Western United States, everything west of the Mississippi, with 31 nurses that are local that are reaching out to our what we call our PSUs, our persistent super utilizers, and really trying to have an impact in their care care delivery and it's it's already been shown i mean we're we've got like a $251 pmpm savings demonstrated specifically from reduction in readmissions and and hospital er visits and it's really around these local nurses so that's our magic mojo like i'm i'm giving out our secret sauce here they have a local area code when they call the patient yeah that's it nice. <laughs> it's not an 800 number it doesn't say united healthcare it's just a local area code and so the the member picks up and the nurse is able to engage with them and talk to them about hey you know that cvs down the road during uh, carpool time like three o'clock in the afternoon don't go there. you can't get in the parking lot and hey wasn't it awesome to watch the wildcats win you know at the local high school football game friday night so they they immediately build up a relationship and it's it's
1: amazing what we're able to do that concept yeah i've heard a couple times i don't I'm not that they actualize it, but people have talked about it like i've led a couple of workshops recently where if you could describe the best solution, it was similar to what you're Talking about, they use sort of the word like Sherpa, you know, from mountain, our mountain climbing experience. Yep. But you know, you, so you're my CMO. No one can see this because this is uh, audio, but we actually have video as we're recording. And this is my United Health card. So you're my CMO. <laughs> so awesome. We're uh, 690,000 uh, people in uh, Texas. So now I know who to call. If I, if I there need you a, go. I need you got stuff. a problem. And that's just, that's
0: just Medicare. We got, we got another two or 3 million E&I oh, employer yeah, yeah. and individual. Right. Yeah. I'm on the employer side,
1: so of course, but yeah. anyways. So yeah, I'm not cool. your CMO. <laughs> I enough, but you'll still help me. I I Absolutely. i so nice to you. Hey, let's talk about leadership. Let's shift a little bit. We talked a lot already sort of on the personal side and a great story about, about your kids and the, some of the things that you've done, you know, track cycling things and how translates to work and a little bit of insight into the payer world. So thank you for that. But what really makes it makes it all work, at least the career part of it is even the home part, is the leadership. So what is some of the most important advice anyone ever gave to you. So this is just general question around leadership. Like, is there one piece of advice that sticks out in your mind? Oh, can I go to like maybe two or three?
0: Cause it's yeah, hard yeah, to, sure. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, I think, so I don't remember who it was, John Maxwell maybe that said, you know, the, the true sign of a leader is not the number of followers that they have, but the number of leaders that they create. Mm. That has really resonated with me. And through at least the last 15, 20 years of, of my life, that's been my goal, like I like to lead from behind. I like to give the opportunity for those that work with me and for me to take on projects do them themselves, get the credit for it like i don't I don't need the credit i'm I'm already here in my position. that's enough for me that's I think the first and foremost part is is really trying to build others up and and create more leaders and I'd say also persistence and grit like. As much as we live in 2022 and we dream about everything going viral overnight and creating these, you know, amazing things overnight, I gotta say, I'm not sure I've ever created anything overnight and nothing I've really ever done has gone viral and it's just persistence and grit. You just got to show up and every day you have to evaluate what you're doing so that, uh, you know there's there's persistence and grit
1: and a daily evaluation of what you're doing yeah those are really awesome i was taking notes uh myself and we already talked about how you fit everything in but how do you remain fresh? So is there anything, Ken, that you do that sort of recharges you? You know, everyone's, you know, you work hard, play hard, all that kind of stuff, and you need some downtime. So is there something that you do that helps you?
0: I'm with daily biking, for sure. I schedule on my little calendar seven days a week of biking. And the reality is I, I rarely, if ever, get seven days. But unless I schedule it, if I don't yeah. schedule it, then I'm like two or three days of biking. But I, can, I get five to six days a week, consistently and every eighth week or so I get a full seven in, but if you don't schedule it, it just doesn't happen. And that's, that's where I do a lot of my kind of like critical thinking and I pray on my bike. I don't, I meditate too. I think I keep my eyes open, but it's just really rejuvenating. And I, and my wife can tell, i make like, you know, she, she will reach out and like, Hey, it's obvious you have not biked in three or four days. Why don't you go for a bike ride? <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's a necessity. And You know, at the beginning of 22, I got this little neat device called the Muse. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a little thing that you strap around your head and, and connects to your phone and it's supposed to track your theta waves and when you're in a meditative state. Because I've, I've always tried to figure out how to add more meditation in my life. And despite the fact I know it's the thing I should do, I just can't consistently do it. And this, this Muse has has been the apparently the electronic gamification that I needed to make it happen. Yeah. Those are yeah. probably the two things.
1: When you said that, it flashed back to a final memory and then we'll... Then- I'll leave the last comment for you. But I remember we did a, TED, a TEDx together and you were one of the speakers and you were on this, uh, you were talking about brainwaves and stuff. You, you were on this board. What's that board called? It's like a balance board, but there's a name for it. Well, it's a balance board. I mean, you can call them bongo boards or... Yeah, bongo board. Yeah, so you're basically balancing. It's like a skateboard size thing and there's a ball basically you're teetering on and then you were juggling yep. and giving a talk, a scientific talk right? That was, that was pretty amazing. So, so I had to follow your footsteps, of course, like uh, Dr. Adams does it. I could do that. I about broke my, my neck, I think on that, uh, that I lost it. Amazing. All right. So Ken, so much we talked about, is there anything we missed or anything you want to double down on?
0: I'm assuming that the people that are going to be listening to this are are healthcare leaders or leaders in the IT world. And you know, self care is especially coming out of COVID and the pandemic is, is just so important. I, I see so many executives who think they need to work 60, 80 hours a week and neglect their health. They neglect their diets. And that is, is something, if I'm going to leave people with a piece of advice, don't do that. <laughs> Take care of yourselves.
1: <laughs> Wise words from our CMO friend, colleague, Dr. Ken Adams. Ken, thank you so much for being part of Digital Voices. Thank you. All right, that wraps up Digital Voices. And as we end, just a shout out to our DJ, Megan, and producer. Thank you for all you do to make Digital Voices a success.
0: Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.